0: a new series. It's called Life and Death. And here's the the truth. I believe that today as we dive into this, you're going to realize that what you do with your money is more important than you've ever realized. And I pray that by the time we get through walking in Scripture today that you're going to see that God in his mercy has a beautiful plan for every aspect of life. It doesn't leave anything untouched. And one of those areas that God has been very directive about is our finances. Now, before we get started, let me just tell you a joke. Imagine, if you would, that that a a large airliner went down over a deserted desert island. There's nothing there. Maybe you might recognize this scene from Lost. If you watched the show, I don't think any show has ever ended more horribly than that show did. (laughs) So imagine, you know, there's the wreckage all over, everybody's running around, but as the, the dust settles, only two survivors have made it through the crash. There's two men on the island, and one guy is super calm, and one guy is just losing his junk. He's running up and down the beach. We're going to die. We're going to die. He's looking at the other guy. Why are you so calm? He's like, I'm okay. I know we're going to get rescued. No, why? I mean, running up and down. we got to find water. we got to find supplies. we got to find this. we got to find that. Just losing it. He comes up to the guy. Why are you so calm? He's like, I know we're going to get rescued. How do you know? How do you know we're going to get rescued? Well, here's the truth. I make $500,000 a week. The guy looks at him, confused. Are you saying we're going to get rescued because you're rich? That doesn't make any sense. You're stupid. We're lost. We're never going to get found. He's like, no, wait, 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 wait a minute. Wait a minute. I make $500,000 a week, and I tithe. And I promise you, I don't know whether you, you believe in God or not, my pastor is going to find a way to find me. <laughs> I believe that one of the most important and loving directives that God has ever issued is to live with generous hearts. And the sad truth is that we live in a world that has a lot to say about how we deal with money. I have a lot of friends who want to give us advice on how we deal with money. And we miss sometimes the truth that God's word really does speak to us a lot about how we manage money. And I believe that it's not because God wants your money. It's really a bigger issue. I think even in this space, in the context of a church, it's important to talk about this because there's so much culturally that gets busted when it comes to the way that we deal with generosity in the context of church. In 1995, the Butterball Turkey Company got a call the day before Easter, or not day before Thanksgiving. We're in November. We should be talking about Thanksgiving, not Easter. Um, So... They got a call the day before Thanksgiving. Almost at Easter again. I can't believe that. Is, my brain's misfiring a little bit. So so they get a call right before Thanksgiving. And the, the the person on the on the line says, we we've had a f- turkey that's been frozen for 23 years. Can we eat it? And the guy from Butterball is like, you know, has it been frozen the entire time? Yes, never been thawed. It's always remained in the freezer. Well, then, yes, if it's been frozen for 23 years, you can eat the turkey. But let me caution you this. It's probably not going to taste very good. And the person on the phone said, well, then we'll probably give it to the church. (laughs) The first church I worked at was a small little country church. I was the youth pastor there for about five years. We had 17 vacuums, 17. None of them really worked. As a matter of fact, if you wanted to vacuum a room, you'd go get a vacuum, try it out, see which one worked, go get another one. Maybe this one's working today. You never knew, right? Why did we have 17 vacuums? Because whenever anybody in the church got a new vacuum, they'd bring their leftovers to church. I hope you see with me that that perspective of generosity isn't quite healthy. As a matter of fact, I would say today that what you do with your money is more important than you realize. For us, often money is a conversation that has to do with budgets and can we afford that, can we go on that trip. It's really more important than that. How you treat money is an issue of life and death. And today, we're going to deal with how the Bible dealt with money and still guides us from a perspective that starts with the early emerging church through Jesus back into the Old Testament all the way to where it started. And I believe that as we do that, that God is going to show us what real, authentic, biblical generosity looks like. So number one in your notes today is I want you to see this before we get started, that there's no good excuse to avoid being biblically generous. And think about that. We, we have two pretty common excuses when it comes to generosity. The first one is we don't have that much money. We're not dealing with an abundant amount of surplus. It's hard for us to be generous. And I understand that. We've been through some hard times. We've been through years where my income, my wife's income didn't look anything like it does now, or like it ever had. There, there was some hard, especially when we were planting. Those first few years were really financially difficult. I understand that. We've been there. Another excuse that we have is sometimes we're just going through a hard time. We're going through it. But you don't understand. This is a difficult season. I've been there. I've walked through cancer with my mom. I've walked through some... Difficult health circumstance with my wife and, and with me. We've had relationship trauma. We've, we've dealt with moves and bad financial decisions, all of that stuff before. We've been there. But those are two excuses that we throw out. I want you to look at what happened in the New Testament church. The Apostle Paul in Second Corinthians is writing the church in Corinth. And he's writing them in a particular time that's very important that the churches uh, all throughout the known world are, are giving towards a cause and a need that's emerged in the church of Jerusalem. Now, the, the church of Jerusalem is kind of like the sending church. It's where many of these guys were based out of. Their missionary journeys began from there. And so these guys are, are, are really in need, and the churches that they've started are now giving towards that need. Now, here's what's awesome. Last year, we planted literally hundreds of churches, okay? And what we found is our ch- the churches that we planted through the ark last year gave over $20 million to missions, That's what happens when you plant churches. And the church in Jerusalem had planted churches around the Mediterranean Rim, and now they're giving towards a missionary cause. But here's what's happening. The church in Corinth has promised a lot of money to this cause, but they haven't delivered on it yet. And so Paul, the apostle Paul, has been in Macedonia, and the churches there are nowhere near as affluent as the church in Corinth. Look at how this goes. Now, I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. They are being tested by many troubles, and they are very poor. Now, look at that. Two excuses right there. It's a difficult time. They're very poor, but they are also filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed into rich generosity. For I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. And they did it of their own free will. They begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. And they did even more than what we had hoped for. For their first action was to give themselves to the Lord. Just as God wanted them to do. See, I want you to see these people were poor. And really a poor that we don't understand. And they were going through a hard time. But yet, in the midst of their poverty and their difficulties and trials, they were generous. See, I think sometimes we use the things in our life as excuses as to why we can't do what God's called us to do. But notice this their poverty wasn't an excuse, it was actually a setting for their story. It was a setting we talk about their generosity as being so amazing because of where their generosity came from. Because it came out of a setting when they were impoverished, they were experiencing trials, and because of their setting, their story is that much more amazing. And I think that sometimes we need to realize about our setting that often the setting of our story is a setup from God for something good. And too often what we do is we allow our setting to become an excuse when your setting is really a setup. That's what they did. They allowed it to be a setup. And these people look, it took this eternal perspective. They got outside of their current confines of the poverty and difficulty, and they saw a potential to make an eternal difference. And they allowed their actions to reflect that. So the Apostle Paul continues. Since you excel in so many ways, and this could be in many ways referencing us as a church. He could be talking to the, the American church, the modern church. Look at this. Since you excel in so many ways, in your faith, in your gifted speakers, in your knowledge, your enthusiasm, and your love from us, I want you to excel also in this gracious act of giving, I'm not commanding you to do this, but I'm testing how genuine your love is by comparing it with the eagerness of other churches. Now focus on that last phrase. I'm testing the earnestness of your love. How genuine is your love? And how can we test that? We can test that by your generosity. Because here's the thing about generous We are all generous to the things we love. We're all generous to the things we love. See, genuine love is proven through biblical generosity. This is why it's so important to understand. Now, I love that he talks about, and I, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying really to call you out or compel you, but what I am trying to do is, is, he says to them, I'm trying to compare the earnestness of your love comparatively to somebody else who's been generous. Think about how difficult, that would be almost like saying, hey, y'all, we're going to all pull out our giving statements, and I just want you to kind of walk around the room and compare them to somebody else. That would be really uncomfortable. And we don't do that, and there's a reason why we don't do that. And we're going to go backwards a little bit to peer into the teaching of Jesus and see why. Because as we go back to Jesus and the foundation that was laid, I want you to understand as the church emerged, it was generosity that characterized the early Christians. There were things that happened historically around the time that the church was emerging, plagues, difficulties, and the the people would leave cities and, and the Christians would stay to take care of those who were hurting and broken and diseased. Why? Because they understood that it was generosity that became the hallmark of the teaching of Jesus and the way that Jesus would lead us to live. And it was those seeds of generosity that planted and became the sprouting, thriving early church. So let's go back to the teachings of Jesus. If you have a bible that you read has red letters in it i don't know if you know this but those are literally the words of jesus we need to pay attention to red letters because this if we're going to say we're christians we probably need to pay attention to exactly what jesus said so we're going to matthew 23 and notice that jesus if you ever pay attention to the teachings of jesus jesus taught more on money than he taught on any other subject as a matter of fact, you can take stuff like relationships and forgive and combine all of it, and it doesn't equal to the amount of times that he talked about money. Why? Because it's a big issue for us. It's super practical. The Ramsey Foundation, Dave Ramsey, solicited a, a, a study in 2018. They found this, that in marriages, the number one point of conflict is financial arguments. The number two listed cause for v- divorce is, is financial problems. It's a big issue. Why would God talk about it so much? Because it's a big issue for us. So Jesus in Matthew 23 talks about it. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of the religious law and you Pharisees hypocrites? For you are all careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy and faith. You should tithe. Yes. But do not neglect the more important things. Leave that up there for a second. Jesus is saying in this moment, listen, tithing is a given. But the Bible, the heart of God points us to go beyond that, to be the people who can show up and pay for the single moms who need somebody to pay for their power bill that month. The Bible points us to being the person who sees the person struggling behind us in the grocery line, and we can pay for their groceries. You should tithe, yes, but you should go above and beyond that. As a matter of fact, I would break this first down into number two in your notes. There's a lot to fill in here if you're taking notes with us today. The minimum standard for biblical generosity starts with returning 10% of your income, returning it to God, to the church, which we call a tithe, and offering your resources, your talents, and your time towards justice and mercy. This is the minimum. This is the floor. For many of us we've thought of 10% as the ceiling. I might get there one day. That's what really good people do. That's what those people who are wealthy can afford to do. That no. The sta- the minimum standard for biblical generosity starts with the standard of 10%. See, let me break this down. So we are to return a portion of what we have been given to God as a faith response to our increase that acknowledges God's provision. God gives to us, we take a portion and return it back to him. God, if this is a faith response. God, you gave it, you gave it, I'm returning it. You gave, I return. You gave, I return. Number two, we are to give a minimum of 10% as of that response, a minimum. That's a tithe. Tithe literally means 10%. And then... We are also to give offerings, and this is what an offering An offering is above and beyond a tithe. It, the, the tithe is the minimum standard, but above and beyond, we're supposed to give offerings to causes of justice and mercy, which means that we're supposed to be like our early brothers and sisters who were in the community serving those who were broken and needed, but were also supposed to be funding and fueling the mission of the church, which the church uniquely holds and houses the mission of God, to redeem a lost and broken world. Now, maybe you're here today and you don't like the idea of tithing. I get that. The idea that I'm supposed to give away 10% of what I think is mine. It seems a little bit high, Okay. Let's look at to, the teachings of Jesus, okay? In Luke 21, Jesus again uses a percentage to affirm what generosity looks like. He's in, in kind of an awkward way sitting with his disciples in church watching people give their offering. And we don't do that. We don't sit around and look at you and you <laughs> drop whatever it is in the offering. We don't. We don't broadcast what people put in online. We don't do that. But Jesus is doing that and people are dropping large amounts in. And then... An elderly woman comes through and drops a very small. As a matter of fact, it would be like inconsequential in, in our terminology today. And this is what Jesus says. I tell you the truth. This poor widow has given more than all the rest of them. For they have given a tiny part of their surplus. But she, poor as she is, has given everything She has. Jesus takes the standard, moves it from 10% to 100%. She gave everything. She gave everything. And and that might be something that we would say, you know, that's an isolated incident. He only did that one time with a widow. But in Mark chapter 10, a young man approaches Jesus, and he says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit the eternal life that you're speaking about? What, what do I need to do? And Jesus looked at him in a very wise way. He said, well, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie. Honor your parents, love your neighbor as yourself. And he looks back at him and he says, but Jesus, I've done all of those since I was a kid. And Jesus intentionally left out the first commandment, which was to have no other gods before him. So he looks back at him and he replies this way, Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. I love that phrase. There's still one thing you haven't done. Go and sell all your possessions. and Give the money to the poor, and then you will have treasures in heaven. Then come follow me. And at this the man's face fell, for he went away sad, for he had many possessions. We could say that his possessions had taken possession of his heart. He couldn't keep the first commandment because he had a God that was before Jesus. His stuff. And Jesus took that standard of 10% and slid it all the way to 100%. Go sell everything you have. Give all that money away and then come follow me. Jesus did this consistently throughout his teaching. He took the moral law of God And he slid it forward. He would say, you know what? You've heard it said, you've heard it said that you're not supposed to commit adultery. But I say if anyone has looked on a man or on a woman lustfully, then he's already committed adultery in his heart. You've heard it said, don't murder. But I say if you hate someone, you've already murdered them. He took that law and extended it far beyond what we had come to understand its meaning to be. Why? Let me me just say this. I think that Jesus knew that our greatest barrier to eternal life was a good life. Our greatest barrier to eternal life is a good life. I have a friend who's a pastor in Southern California. His church is very affluent. He stood in front of his church, looked at them and said, you know what? I don't think many of us want to go to heaven because we're so in love with our lives. Jesus knew that, and he pushed us, pushed us to understand the power of generosity. As a matter of fact, Jesus extended the directive of generosity well beyond the starting point. The starting point is 10%, but Jesus took it well beyond that. Why? Because he was pushing us to understand everything through an eternal mindset. So let's take a step back from Jesus to the, to the Old Testament. I want you to see this. Number three in your notes today. The command to tithe was God's loving way to establish a consistent reminder that it all belongs to him. The command to tithe was God's loving way to create a reminder in our hearts and in our lives that it all belongs to him. Because we, all of us, can get tricked into thinking that what's in our possession is something that we own. But much of what you possess will only be in your hands for a little while. The first time tithing appears in scriptures in Leviticus twenty seven. And it goes this way one tenth of the produce of the land, whether grain or the fields from the tree or, or grain from the fields or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord, and it must be set apart for him as holy. It belongs to God. The tithe does not belong to you. What you have been given belongs to God. It it originated from him. It belongs to him. And he has a plan for it. That's the intention of understanding the heart of God behind what he has blessed us with. God has a plan for it. He has a plan for it when he gives it to you. And he has a plan as he wants to give it through you. See, I think it's so amazing that God would start with Something like 10%. That's the whole beauty of the law. The law was to put a metric standard so that we could understand what God is asking, right? That we could have a metric to know this is what generosity looks like. So 10% was the standard that was applied to understand what generosity would look like so that we could look at it and go, hey, you know what? I know what I've got. I know what 10% looks like. Am I really kind of living in this flow that God has designed for me to be generous in this way? But how loving is it that God would require us to know our 100%, ask us to give 10%, and then know what our 90% is to live off of? When the average middle income family in the United States is living off well above 100% of their income, going into debt every month, buying stuff that they can't afford to impress people that they don't even like. Why? It's so loving for God to point us to what our 100% is. Now, many of us, we, we, we kind of get this, okay, this is what God wants. And there, there was a, a pretty common understanding as the nation of Israel was emerging that this is what God wanted. And in Malachi 3, we find a, a portion of the history of Israel when Israel wasn't living up to that standard. And so this is one of those moments when the teaching of Scripture is so cross-categorically applicable because many of us, we would just stand and go, hey, you know what? I'm struggling in this right now. And God's speaking directly to a group of people who are failing to be obedient in the tithe. Look at this, Malachi 3, verses 8 and 10. Should people cheat God? Yet you've cheated me, but you ask, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? You have cheated me of the tithes and offerings due to me. This is God speaking. You're under a curse. I'm just saying this up front. I don't ever want to be in a category of people that God says you're under a curse. That's kind of a bad, bad start to the day. You're under a curse for your whole nation has been cheating me. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't even have room to take it in. Try it and put me to the test. Would you leave that up there? The the directive is to bring the tithe this scripture uses into the storehouse so there will be enough food. This is what God says, enough food in my temple. All right, here's the thing. The mission of the church is God's mission on earth, to see the redemptive message of Jesus applied to every human heart. And it is uniquely given to the church. The tithe is dedicated to come to the church to fund and fuel its mission. And in this scripture, God's saying, if you'll do that, you will fully fund and fuel the mission of God. But far too often, we're found robbing God. But God knows, I think that this is why the scripture is so loving. And God knows that this is so irrational that he's like, just try it. Just try it. Test me. Test me in this. This is why around here, we say, tithe. Give us 90 days. Literally give us 90 days. Tithe. And at the end of 90 days, if it doesn't work for you, stop. And if it's something where you're like, you know what, financially it just didn't work, give you all the money you gave back. Why do we do that? Because we want to help you take a risk free time to literally step in the desire that God has for your life, especially financially. Now, many of us would say, hey, you know what, I get that. But that's so Old Testament. I mean, I'm a a Christian. I'm living under the New Testament, the teachings of Jesus. To what I would point you to actually re-examine Matthew 23, 23, what Jesus said, should you tithe? Yeah. Yeah, that's the given. But don't neglect the other things, the offerings above and beyond that. Be the person that tithes and takes care of your neighbor, that tithes and pays for that person's groceries. Be that. Be the person that's generous. Why? Because there are lives that hang in the balance of our generosity. This is something that goes all the way back. You you may know Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? They're, They're the forefathers of our faith. Jacob tithed. In Genesis 28, he said this, at this memorial pillar I've set up will become a place for worshiping God, and I will present to God a tenth of everything that he gives me. Love that. Jacob tithed go back to Abraham. Abraham tithe Genesis 14. Melchizedek is a priest that steps in to minister to Abraham in the wake of a massive military victory. Melchizedek blessed Abram with this blessing. Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has defeated your enemies for you. Then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods he had recovered. Now, some of y'all might say, that seems so disconnected from the teachings of Jesus in Hebrews. Jesus is described as being a priest in the line of Melchizedek. And there he is, connecting to Abraham, It goes further back, Cain and Abel, the, the sons of Adam and Eve in Genesis 4, they're giving a first fruit offering to God, and it goes like this, when it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some, notice some, of his crops to the Lord. Abel brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel's gift, but it did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. Why are you so angry, the Lord asked Cain? Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right. What is right is giving God the best first. If you'll do what is right. See, watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and become its master. I want you to see this about Generosity number four. Generosity isn't an issue of compliance. It's an issue of obedience. It's not about you checking off a checkbox of the things that Christians are supposed to do. It's about having a heart that looks at God and says, God, whatever you want me to do, I want to be obedient. I don't want to choose my own way. God, I want to be the person that lives for you, that does things the way that you want me to do. See God't God wants your heart, not your money. God, want, God wants your heart, not your money. He's, he's not concerned with trying to get all your God already has all the money he needs. But what God wants to do is to protect your heart. Why? Because it's so important. The Bible says that your heart is deceitful above all things. It's deceitful. And God knows that your money can steal your heart. He knows that. And so what does God want to do? He wants to protect your heart. I think that's reflected in 1 Timothy 6 where the scriptures say that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. Notice it doesn't say money is the root of all. It says that the love of money is the root of all evil. And God wants you. To be in love with him. See, I think that this goes beyond beyond Cain and Abel. I'd always wondered, if you deal with Cain and Abel, how in the world did they know to bring an offering to God first? Well, let's deal with the garden. In Genesis 2.9, the scriptures say, in the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God begins his story by placing two people, Adam and Eve, into a garden. And it looks a little bit like this. There's the garden. I'm going to do a little bit of whiteboards with you just for a minute. Now, here's the thing a lot of times we think about freedom, and we think about freedom as the absence of boundaries, but that's not true. As a matter of fact, before sin ever entered the world, God placed them in a garden, which means that there were boundaries. You're not supposed to go outside the lines. And then the scriptures tell us that God put in the middle of the garden two trees the tree of life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then he said to them, look at this scripture, Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. He warned them, you may freely eat of the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. You're going to die. I've given you life. I've given you everything you need. But this tree, this is my tree. This isn't your tree. And the fruit from this tree is not for you. And as a matter of fact, if you eat it, you're taking something that I've said is mine. And when you do that, when you hijack what is mine, you're inviting death. Look at this. This is what the garden would have looked like. Trees everywhere. Fruit all around. But every day when Adam and Eve woke up, There was one tree that God said, that's mine. That's my tree. It's not yours. The fruit from that tree, you're not to eat that. That is mine. And that's the the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you eat from that tree, you're going to die. You're going to die. You're going to die. In the Bible, the... The New Testament in Romans says that the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. In other words, when we sin, we earn death. We, we, We invoke death in our lives because we walk outside of God's boundaries. In the very beginning in the garden, God said, here is everything you need. And this one tree... Every day, you have to return that to me. You have to return that to me. You have to return that to me. I've given you everything you need, but you need to make sure that you realize that there are boundaries and that one is off limits. You have to, don't try to hijack what you could take. That's mine. Don't take it. Because if you take it, you're inviting death. See, the issue of what you do with your money isn't an issue of will you become wealthy or broke, it's an issue of life or death. Because when you hijack what God alone has given you and what he has set aside to say, this is mine, when you try to hijack what's God's, you invite death. See, there are things in our life we don't own. There are things that we don't own. You ever thought about that? Let me give you a list of five things we don't own. You don't own your relationships. Friends are a gift. And they're a gift from God. Some of you are some of the wealthiest people in the world, not because of the money in your bank account, because of the friends in your life. Your health, your health is a gift. Oh, I mean, we've got to take care of ourselves. Everything that we've been given, we have to take care of. You need to take care of yourself. There are plenty of people who have taken care of themselves and experienced some very difficult health crisis. We had one in our church not too long ago, a young mother, several kids, and, and she had always been very healthy and taken really good care of herself, and then she got a very strange form of cancer, and she died in 15 months. You don't own your health, and you don't own your time. Number three. Some of us have experienced the tragedy of someone whose time was up way too soon. And you don't own your time. You don't. We need to take good care of our time. Every person in this room gets 24 hours today. and You'll get 24 hours tomorrow. Steve Jobs got 24 hours. Bill Gates has 24 hours. The most creative and influential people in the world get 24 hours a day. What will you do with yours? Number four, you don't own your kids. If you think you own your kids, just wait until they're teenagers. They're going to convince you that you don't own them. And number five, your money. You don't own your money. See, all of these things on this list, we are called by God to be good managers of them, to be good stewards of the opportunities and the influence that lies therein. But we don't own it. And because we don't own it, God does. And he has a plan for all of those things in your life. And when we disobey God, what we do is we invite death. For the wages of sin is death. Many of us have been just like Adam and Eve. The temptation that that they faced was that the devil said to them, if you eat from this fruit, you will be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. So many of us have tried to become our own gods and decide for ourselves what is right and wrong. Instead of just saying, God, I don't care. It's your decision. Whatever you want, I'm doing it. Whatever you don't, I'm not. See, the choice is so simple. It's so simple. Do it your way and invite death. Do it your way and invite death. And death might not come in your finances. I mean, the truth is death death might come in your kids. Let me just say something. If you're a parent in here, I want you to listen to this. If you negotiate your morality in front of your kids, do not be surprised when they do the same. Don't be surprised when they do the very same thing. It might not come in one area. It might come in another area. But when we're disobedient, when we do it our way, When we don't take God's directives seriously, we invite death, but you can do it God's way and experience life because the issue isn't wealth or poverty. The issue is life and death. This is why from the very beginning to the very end, the Bible makes such a big deal about this. This is why marriages end over finances. This is why relationships end over finances because... It's not an issue of poverty and wealth. It's an issue of life and death. And we need to get it right. And we need to get it right right now. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.